Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also make you feel totally in control? Enter Conair Girlbomb. They're like your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results, made just for us. From the ultimate girl bomb grip to the professional grade blades, say goodbye to settling for less. With Conair Girl Bomb, you get the precision and power that used to only be exclusive to men's tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb, available at Walgreens. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, You do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's December 1972. Canadian Jamie Matthews, age 14, is sitting comfortably in his airplane seat. It's his first trip away from home. Jamie's first love is astronomy, and astronomy has earned him the trip of a lifetime. He's been to the White House, to NASA's mission control in Texas, to the United Nations, and now he's returning home. But there's a problem. And no, it's not the airline food. Someone is threatening to kidnap Jamie because he has a rock. And not just any rock, a moon rock. One retrieved by an astronaut 240,000 miles from Earth. This is your captain speaking, Jamie Matthews. Please come to the front of the plane. Jamie Matthews, to the front of the plane. Two scary men are here to pick you up. I repeat, two very serious looking men are here to take you away. Jamie takes some tentative steps forward. He's just landed in Detroit. Two adults in dark suits meet him on the tarmac. Now, these men are not the kidnappers. They're from the United States Secret Service. They explain to Jamie what's happening. His parents, back in Canada, received an alarming phone call threatening his safety. All because of this rock. They want to escort him to the Canadian border, just to be safe. Because the moon rock isn't exactly a souvenir. It's one of the most rare and valuable materials on Earth. It could be worth millions. To Jamie, it's worth even more. But what the kidnappers don't know is that Jamie doesn't have it. Not yet, anyway. But he will. And the men who called Jamie's parents... They're not the only ones who want a piece of the moon. Welcome to Very Special Episodes, an iHeart original podcast. I'm your host, Dana Schwartz, and this is Operation Lunar Eclipse. Okay, so you know how like when kids are like five or six, they have like hyper fixations? Mm -hmm. I feel like it's like dinosaurs, it's like trucks. Uh, For me, it was like Greek mythology, but I feel like for some kids, it's also space. Were you a space kid, Jason or Zarin? Oh, yeah. You were a space kid? Completely. I'm still mad that they took the planetary status away from Pluto. I'm one of those space kids. (laughs) My weird, I mean, not weird at all. My like space connection is I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago 
And when I was in high school, every Sunday, I would drive down to the Adler Planetarium and volunteer all Sunday to like teach kids science and space demonstrations. Oh, wow. I love you for that. That is awesome. It was so cool because it's like every kid, I mean, I would, not every kid, I as a dork loved museums <laughs> and this idea that I had like a badge and I could like I knew the code to like get backstage at the museum it was the coolest thing in the world you're a museum insider I was a museum insider I don't mean to like you know big time you because I'm a huge celebrity yeah no I understand I mean you, you can brag on that that that's worth it you sometimes you got to flex on us I taught them about the moon mission I taught them about gravity but I had no idea about like the legality of buying and owning lunar rocks they don't want you to know that that's what it is. Those kids couldn't handle that. Yeah, see, we're all, it's all hidden from all of us. All right, well, do you guys want to hear a story about, about stealing moon rocks and the, the black market for illegal moon rock uh, commerce? I am buckled up and ready. Jason, you? Let's blast off. Do, do some kind of countdown. Um, no, just let's just go to the episode. <laughs> <laughs> for a kid super into astronomy, Jamie Matthews had more run-ins with the law than you might have expected. Not because he was breaking the law, but because police kept finding him alone in the middle of the night when he was just eight years old in the last place you'd expect. My parents were not rich, <laughs> and we had a house that was close to the cemetery. <laughs> and so that was the best place to look at the stars uh, at night. That's Jamie. So occasionally the police would come by and see this guy, and they would come and see a guy with a telescope. And so they got me home. I said, you know, I knew where, where I was. As a kid, he lived in Chatham, Ontario. It's rural with lots of farms and lots of stargazing. As an only child, his parents, Jim and June, bought him a telescope, which Jamie took to the darkest part of the neighborhood, the graveyard. There he found ink-black skies and a galaxy to explore. Jamie isn't sure where his love of science came from. His parents were blue-collar workers. Neither was a college graduate. But they recognized their son had a fascination, so they nourished it any chance they could. My first memory was at two, looking at the stars. And from then on, I was totally gone with the stars. Of course, they all watched as Neil Armstrong took mankind's first steps on the moon during the Apollo 11 mission in 1969. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Everyone remembers that. It was a monumental milestone of the 20th century but people tend to forget how quickly the world moved on, how easily the impossible became routine. NASA continued to visit the moon in future Apollo missions, six of them in all, but each time public interest fell off. By the time of the Apollo 17 mission in December 1972, NASA had decided this would be the last mission for at least a decade. To commemorate it, NASA and the U.S. State Department sponsored what they called the International Youth Science Tour. It worked like this. Every country in the U.N. was invited to send a youth representative to watch the final moon mission. Kids aged 15 to 17 were eligible. They'd see everything, from the launch at Kennedy Space Center to the splashdown on TV from UN headquarters in New York City. The 17-day trip would also include Disneyland. And the kids would get something else besides a front row seat to a moon mission. NASA was arranging for each kid to receive a piece of moon rock. They would present it to their country as a goodwill gesture from the United States to the world. 
Gathering moon rocks was a priority of the Apollo missions. The samples revealed clues about the age of the moon and how it might have been formed. A moon rock was one sentence, or a sentence fragment, in the story of our galaxy. For Jamie, the chance to hold the rock in his hand would come later. For now, his objective was seeing a rocket launch, which was plenty exciting. Canada's Youth Science Foundation organized an essay contest. The topic? The importance of space exploration to humanity. I mean, obviously. 2,000 words in which Jamie brought forth a passionate argument for reaching the stars and beyond. He and a friend both entered. Both sent their essays off. And then they waited. In November 1972, Jamie received a letter from the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa. There were a few words on the page, but Jamie just focused on one of them. Congratulations, it said. You're going to the United States. It was somewhat bittersweet. Jamie winning meant his friend didn't. There was another wrinkle. Remember that the contest was only open to kids between 15 and 17? Jamie was 13. He lied about his age when he submitted his essay. They found out a little bit before I got there but because there were other things that I had to do. And I guess finally I said that how old I was. <laughs> they didn't like it, but by that time it was too late. So I got to go. Jamie had just turned 14, so they let it slide. Still, he was the youngest of the 80 kids from around the world who would see Apollo 17 touch down on the moon. His parents, naturally, were thrilled. Oh, they loved it, so they thought it was wonderful for me. The International Youth Science Tour's first stop was in Washington, D.C., where a chartered plane delivered an assembly of students to the current president, Richard Milhouse Nixon. Nixon was a proponent of the space program. He had arranged for moon rock samples to be dispensed from the Apollo 11 mission and was doing the same for Apollo 17. Jamie met Nixon, but the president didn't leave much of an impression. To be honest, I, I don't remember anything that he did. I, I remember shaking his hand, and that's about all I know, <laughs> I know to be honest, at that time. <laughs> to me, it was just another guy. <laughs> so there were other more people later that I liked, but Nixon, nah. When the tour moved to Kennedy Space Center in Florida, Jamie was put in a hotel room next to the man he really wanted to meet, the first human on the moon. We were in a hotel with Neil Armstrong. Uh, and in fact, I, with Neil Armstrong, his wife and his kids, were in the pool together for the entire afternoon. And so I got to do Marco Polo with the man that went on the moon. <laughs> there you go. All of them went to Kennedy Space Center for the launch of Apollo 17. This launch was notable not only for being the last manned moon mission, but the first Saturn V rocket to take off at night. One zero, we have a liftoff. It's just like daylight here at Kennedy Space Center as the Saturn V is moving off the path. It lifted off at midnight, and so it was like the sun rose. It was really amazing. It really was amazing. Jamie and the others were situated about three miles from the Saturn rocket. That may not sound close, but consider that three miles was roughly the distance any shrapnel would be able to travel in the event the rocket blew up. Yeah, yeah, in fact, it's really loud, but also so loud that all of your body is shaking at the time. It's, it's really loud, <laughs> but it was wonderful. It really was. I had not known what it would be like, and no one else will ever see it again. So it was wonderful for me. Later, Jamie went to Mission Control at the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, which is now named for Lyndon Johnson. 
You've seen it, or a version of it, in practically every movie ever made about space travel. Lots of guys with flat buzz cuts and short-sleeved shirts sweating over every switch flipped en route to the moon. But Jamie got to see the real thing in person. On a screen, astronauts Eugene Cernan and Harrison Schmidt traversed the lunar surface. Cernan was the commander, Schmidt the co-pilot, and the only trained geologist to ever visit the moon. Mark, gravity. Copy the mark. Copy the mark. Okay, now, now let me get to work. The men leapt between boulders the size of U-Haul trailers in the moon's Taurus-Litro Valley. They rode a lunar rover over uneven terrain, and they chipped away at rock, coming away with one sample in particular the size of a brick. But it was when Eugene Cernan spoke to the camera that the youth tour really began to perk up. During the moonwalks, we were there at Mission Control, and then on the last moonwalk, just before they left the moon, Sunan, who was the captain, and Smit, who was the other person on the moon, they got a big rock <laughs> and they brought it to the camera and said, this is for you. This is for us. They said when it gets back to Earth, they'll you know, get it into small places and each of us will get one. And we did. So yeah, the, the moon rock was what? We're getting that? <laughs> it was wonderful. It really was. Here's what Eugene Cernan said to the kids that day. When we return this rock, or some of the others like it to Houston, we'd like to share a piece of this rock with so many of the countries throughout the world. We hope that this will be a symbol of what our feelings are, what the feelings of the Apollo program are, and a symbol of mankind that we can live in peace and harmony in the future. The tour wound down after that. Jamie and the others watched on TV from the United Nations building as the capsule splashed down. And soon, Jamie was headed back home to be escorted to the Canadian border by Secret Service agents. But Jamie wasn't yet in possession of the rock. No, well, because it was on the moon. <laughs> so they had to wait until they got back, and then they had to break it into little pieces and then each one was gone in a piece of plastic. And then it, it got to me like in a, a, a month or so. So the, somebody had called them and said that they were going to kidnap me and the rock, even though it wasn't there. The police guarded his house for a few months afterward. Eventually, they grew satisfied that the kidnapping threat against Jamie would never materialize. This isn't a story, by the way, about a young Canadian science enthusiast getting kidnapped. But that young Canadian's moon rock? The brick-sized moon rock would be analyzed by NASA scientists before it was divvied up for 135 countries, plus every U.S. state and territory. A few weeks later, via special delivery, Canada's piece arrived on Jamie's front doorstep. The rock fragment was encased in lucite. Below it was a Canadian flag which had been brought to the moon and back. The junior astronomer was in possession of something very few civilians have ever seen up close, a moon rock, a little over one gram in size. It was very dark. People don't realize that the moon is really dark. We only see it because it's in the sky at night. But if you look at it without that, it, it reflects only about five, six, seven percent of the light from the sun. So it's almost like charcoal. Jamie didn't put it in a safety deposit box, nor did he stick it anywhere for safekeeping. It went in a shoebox under his bed, where it could be periodically pulled out to show family or friends, or just to stare at before going to bed. Once, it even wound up in the family car. It was in our car without the doors locked at all for about two hours. 
and it was just there. Somebody could have done it. But Jamie had been only a temporary custodian. The moon dust sprinkled over his life for a fleeting period of time. In early 1973, he got a notice. It was time to hand the moon rock over to its intended recipient, the country of Canada. During a ceremony at Rideau Hall in Ottawa, Jamie dutifully, but dolefully, handed over the rock to Roland Mishner, the governor general. Because Canada didn't want him to leave empty-handed, they prepared a gift for him in return. You know what I got in return? I got a book called The Birds of Canada. Did Canada confuse astronomy with ornithology? Jamie never found out why he was given a book about birds. Maybe it's all they had lying around. But Governor General Mishner was not the final stop for the moon rock. It was given to the National Museum of Natural Sciences in Ottawa. And for Jamie, it was like being forced to put it up for adoption. He agonized over the rock's well-being. For a few years, I didn't go and see it, but I would call them occasionally and just say, how is it? Then, in 1978, Jamie made his customary call. The museum had some bad news for Jamie. I called, and it was gone. And they said that it was stolen. And I thought, geez, if you could have done that, I should have just kept it in a jukebox in my bed. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a walk? Take a nap. Read that book on your nightstand. I think a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? What if time was unlimited? How would you use it? Best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's really important to you. Make that a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Therapy isn't only for people who've experienced major trauma in their lives. Therapy can help teach you positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. If you've been thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp is entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Vary today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Vary. As we celebrate International Women's Day and all the strides we've made, let's also take a moment to reflect on something important, the future of our self-care. You see, for too long, we've compromised on things that matter most, us, but not anymore. New Conair Bomb is helping us embrace a new era of self-care and self-love. Girl Bomb represents a groundbreaking line of hair removal tools specifically designed for women. From the smoothest shave to the most precise trim, Conair Girl Bomb is all about making you feel empowered, confident, and unapologetically you. Whether it's creating a hype playlist, throwing yourself into a hobby, or scheduling some me time, self care is so important. With Conair Girl Bomb's ultimate Girl Bomb grip and professional grade blades, we're reclaiming our self-care journey with precision and power, the kind we used to only get from men's tools. So head to Walgreens today and treat yourself to a little Conair Girl Bomb magic. Because when you look good, you feel good, and there's nothing more empowering than that. There was a reason the U.S. government dispatched the Secret Service to meet Jamie Matthews at the airport. Of course, they were concerned for the welfare of a child on a goodwill trip to improve foreign relations. But there was another factor at play. Moon rocks are one of the great black markets in the world. They're worth millions. This moon rock ended up in my pocket for almost 24 hours. That's Joseph Goodheinz. Joseph has one heck of a resume. Started off as an Army aviator and intelligence officer and uh, went to work for the FAA. I was uh, recruited away as a special agent, recruited away from the FAA by U.S. Department of Transportation, Office of Inspector General. And then I was recruited away from uh, DOTOIG by NASA OIG, uh, where I served for about 10 years, a little over actually, as a senior special agent, which means I headed up task force investigations. 
That's right. NASA has special agents. They're armed. They can make arrests. They look into things like missing NASA property, people pretending to be astronauts, and cybercrime. How this isn't a CSI spinoff yet is beyond me. But anyway, in the late 1990s, Joseph took note of the fact that a number of the moon rocks gifted by the United States to foreign governments couldn't be accounted for. Some countries said they had no record of receiving them. Others said they had been reported missing or stolen. And sometimes, Joseph would get word of a con man who purported to have a moon rock for sale. Usually, they didn't. It would be a fake. Like two brothers who insisted their father had been given some moon rocks by astronaut John Glenn. John Glenn was an astronaut, but he never went to the moon. For the most part, moon rocks belong to NASA and the U.S. government. Some have been retrieved by Russia and China, and some lunar meteorites have landed on Earth. But most moon samples were from the Apollo missions. They can only be gifted or loaned out by NASA. If anyone acquires an Apollo mission moon rock from anyone other than NASA, well, that would be wrong. It would have to be offered, as in the case of the Apollo 11 and 17 missions. NASA takes the position, as as does the United States, that nobody can own a moon rock for dust. And so we gift it to the nations of the world 135 Apollo 11 moon rocks on a stand, and we gifted to the nations of the world 135 moon rocks on a plaque like this. And essentially, these were our way of saying, hey, look, all the members of the United Nations, we're all in on this together. We may be sending the rockets to and from the moon, but this is a global effort. There is one sort of exception. The astronauts, when they came back from the moon. The moon isn't exactly a sterile working environment. Like coal miners, Astronauts can come home dirty. They were allowed to keep their gloves and patches. And on the patches and gloves was lunar debris. And so there was one astronaut that would actually bang on his gloves and and cut pieces of his uh, patches apart and put them in painting city. And so essentially... NASA ruled, okay, we kind of gifted that away, too. But for most people who haven't been blasted into space, being in possession of a lunar rock is suspicious. And it didn't sit right with Joe. Risk to our uh, astronauts. Remember, we had astronauts die uh, in practice in Apollo 1. These guys were risking their lives. They got it. They accomplished something. The world united seeing Neil Armstrong take that first step on the moon. And the idea that petty thugs would be stealing these moon rocks for their own wealth, something that I never could understand. And it seemed wrong. It's something that I wanted to accomplish when I was an agent. So in 1998, Joseph decided to take a closer look at the illicit moon rock market. His idea was incredibly simple. He would invite criminals to come to him. And essentially what we did was we put an ad in USA Today, Moon Rocks Wanted, with an astronaut jumping on the moon. And I was looking for con artists to approach me so that we could do the sting operation. Moon Rocks Wanted, send asking price. What Joseph expected were a series of calls from con artists, and he did get some of those. But then he got a call from someone named Alan. What we didn't expect, a guy by the name of Alan Rosen to call me and say, hey, look, you know all those other guys that are calling you? That's bogus. You're not, you know, nobody's allowed to own a moon rock, but guess what? I've got one, and it's for sale. And I said, what's uh, the asking price? He said, $5 billion. Alan didn't sound like the others. For one thing, he had proof he was in possession of a moon rock. 
he sent Joseph a photo of the very same plaque used in the Goodwill Moon Rock tour, the wooden plaque with the country's flag and Nixon's dedication. Allen, however, had taken one measure to make a positive identification of which country it was from a little more difficult. The center of the flag was blocked out, as was the recipient country. We contacted one country after the next, and we found out, guess what? Nobody knows where their moon rocks are. We gifted the moon rocks, and they don't know where they are. Some thought they never even received them. Joseph later learned that the rock belonged to Honduras. So began the plan for the world's first-ever sting operation to recover a stolen moon rock. But there was another problem. Alan knew what he had was very rare and very valuable. His asking price was $5 million. In order to provide Alan with proof of funds, Joe needed $5 million, and NASA didn't pay him that well. So he went to the FBI, who, according to Joseph, told him they couldn't help. So he went to the CIA, and they couldn't help either. Finally, Joseph called his father, a former Marine. His father didn't have the money, but he had something more valuable, some fatherly advice. His dad told him to make a phone call to one person in particular. And so what we did was we contacted a guy by the name of H. Ross Perot, the billionaire who ran for president in 1992. And I uh, got through to his secretary, and I said, hey, look, I need a, um, need a favor. I'm looking for somebody, can't really talk about it, but if H. Ross broke a call, I, I'll convey that information to him. H. Ross Perot was one of the great characters of the 1990s, an excitable Texas billionaire who ran for president in 1992 as an independent. He got almost 20 million votes and lost to Bill Clinton. But that didn't affect his patriotism. Ten seconds later, the phone rings. And H. Ross Bros on the other side and he goes, Hello, Joe. How can I help you? I said, uh, Mr. Pro, what we need is $5 million to get back a moon rock. He goes, no problem. And with the money in hand and the bank, willing to give a letter saying that we had the, the, the money and so forth. We set up the sting at a bank in Miami where he had the moon rock in a vault. And so we put in an undercover agent in the bank, pretending to be an official that was going to photograph it. Allen agreed to meet in Miami and have a bank official photograph the moon rock so Joseph could verify that Allen had it. Only the bank official was an undercover agent. Joseph and his colleagues were waiting for Alan outside. It turned out Alan had acquired the rock from Colonel Argosia Ugarte, who claimed he'd been given it in the 1970s during political unrest in Honduras. Alan had agreed to buy it for $50,000. A judge had approved a warrant to seize the rock. But now Joseph had to get it back to NASA, which brings us back to his pocket. And so I fly back from Miami to Houston, and the moon rock's in my pocket, got a briefcase, I'm armed, and the whole nine yards, and what I was thinking was, if someone's going to steal anything, they're going to steal the briefcase. They're not going to steal what's in my pocket. And so... uh, Then we brought that back immediately to uh, Johnson Space Center's lunar lab where it was tested. The sting, which was dubbed Operation Lunar Eclipse, was successful. Alan Rosen tried to get the rock returned to him in court, arguing he obtained it legally. But a judge sided with NASA and ruled the rock had to be forfeited to the U.S. government. The space agency then returned it to Honduras. But NASA didn't have the resources to make a hunt for missing moon rocks an ongoing project. When Joseph retired from the space agency in 2000, he decided to outsource the search to a group he knew would be very devoted to the cause. 
his students at the University of Phoenix. But again, NASA Office of Inspector General is very, very small. We have under 100 agents. And so I could not sell them with the idea of expending resources to look for moon rocks that we gifted away. And so when I retired from NASA, I uh, started telling my graduate, criminal justice graduate students, I've got this really great investigative drill that I want you to go through. It's called the Moon Rock Project. And I, here are all the moon rocks that we're trying to account for all over the world. I want you to go out and try to find them. And what we did not realize at the time was that so many were actually stolen or missing and that virtually no country had it in an inventory control system that even if they had it, they knew where they were. Systematically, he and his students tried to chase down as many leads as they could for the missing rocks, which turned up in some surprising places. The Apollo 17 rock gifted to Arkansas was found in the archives of former Governor Bill Clinton. His predecessor, David Pryor, had received it in 1976, and it was probably just packed up when Clinton lost re-election in 1980. He was one of three governors who happened to be in possession of Iraq. In Cyprus, the American ambassador had been assassinated. A diplomat's relative grabbed the rock and held onto it until she read about the missing rocks in 2009. Some rocks were in storage. At least one probably wound up in a landfill. Joseph and his team found 78 of them. But many are still missing. And those are just, and again, 150 are missing. Some of the states are missing them. New York's missing their Apollo 11. Delaware's missing their Apollo 11. New Jersey's missing their Apollo 17. And a lot of the nations of the world are missing them. No doubt. There's no doubt in my mind that there's a black market. But what about Canada's Goodwill Rock, the Jamie Matthews Rock? By the time Joseph began his Moon Rock project in 2002, Jamie's Rock had been missing for well over two decades, and it carried a significant price tag. One of a kind, and to a collector, that's invaluable. When we, uh, in Operation Lunar Eclipse, and remember, this goes back some time. The uh, seller, Alan Rosen, offered it to me for $5. And I said, oh, well, let me research that and talk to you. And I talked to some experts at NASA. Priceless, that's what they said. But along the lines of priceless, $5 million could be a reasonable. And as Joe's students began diving into the story, they discovered something odd. In 2002, they started finding the story that he's recounting, that it was stolen in 1978. And I go on to uh, my students, I go, that's not acceptable. It's not acceptable that you're getting a story that says it was stolen. Where's the police report? Where's the newspaper stories? You know, this is a piece of Canadian history and NASA history. Where is the trail? And so they kept tracking it. There was no police report and no news stories. Jamie's moon rock was nowhere. For years afterward, Jamie had kept on calling the museum, asking if the moon rock had reappeared. I kept calling back like every year to find out. And they said, we don't know. And finally, after like 10 years, I, I just said, okay, it's never going to get back. The 1970s turned into the 1980s. Jamie attended the University of Toronto and the University of Western Ontario. He got a job. He sometimes forgot about The Rock. The 1980s turned into the 1990s and then the 2000s. When something is missing for decades, the odds of ever finding it again are slim. The moon rock had officially wound up on the proverbial milk carton. Then, one day, in 2008, Jamie decided to use the single best investigative tool of them all, Google.
As we celebrate International Women's Day and all the strides we've made, let's also take a moment to reflect on something important, the future of our self-care. You see, for too long, we've compromised on things that matter most, us, but not anymore. New Conair Girl Bomb is helping us embrace a new era of self-care and self-love. Girl Bomb represents a groundbreaking line of hair removal tools specifically designed for women. From the smoothest shave to the most precise trim, Conair Girl Bomb is all about making you feel empowered, confident, and unapologetically you. Whether it's creating a hype playlist, throwing yourself into a hobby, or scheduling some me time, self-care is so important. With Conair Girl Bomb's ultimate Girl Bomb grip and professional grade blades, we're reclaiming our self-care journey with precision and power. The kind we used to only get from men's tools. So head to Walgreens today and treat yourself to a little Conair Girl Bomb magic. Because when you look good, you feel good, and there's nothing more empowering than that. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. In 2008, Jamie wasn't really looking for the rock fragment, but for the rock itself. He was hoping to find a picture of the larger piece, the one the astronauts of Apollo 17 had returned to Earth with before it was segmented into smaller sections. But when he tried Googling, he found something else instead. And I wanted to get a thing before it was gotten into all those pieces, so the, the big thing the first time. So I was looking there, I figured somebody must have it. And then I found my thing. What Jamie found was a photo of a man holding his moon rock. Really, Canada's moon rock, but still, it was on the plaque. The digital photo had a visible watermark with a date. The photo was from 2000, eight years prior. Jamie was able to trace the origin of the photo to a storage facility in Aylmer, Quebec, one that belonged to the museum. He phoned the curator. I said, wait, what? And so I looked and I found out that it was in a warehouse in a place in Quebec for 35 years. And nobody knows how it got there. But as soon as I knew it, I, I called the curator and I said, hey, you've got my room rock. <laughs> it took me a while to say it because he didn't, he didn't believe me at first. As more of the story came out, it seemed increasingly unlikely the rock had ever been stolen. The museum had no record of a theft. Joseph Goodhines had never found a police report. More than likely, it had been Clintoned and misplaced for decades. Here's Joseph Goodhines again. What my guess is, and only having dealt with these all over the world, is because nobody accounted for this, that after they were done with their Lou tour, they, they said, okay, where do we put it? Put them over in storage over here. They did. And it was sort of like, you know, in box 3005, who knows? But they just lost track of it over the decades. But why had the museum told Jamie the rock had been stolen instead of misplaced? And nobody knows how it got there. So it's a little bit like Indiana Jones at the last movie, except for me, it's like Indiana Jamie and the last Rune Rock. It was just there and nobody knows how it got there. 
nobody knows because if you go back to that time, nobody is around anymore. Maybe they simply wanted him to stop calling. But there's another wrinkle to the story. Remember that Joseph and his graduate students were looking into the rock as early as 2002. Jamie found the photo in 2008. My students actually tracked it down in 2003 there. According to Joseph, his students had actually located the rock five years earlier, in 2003, in Aylmer. Not through Google, but through detective work. They called every museum and museum-associated building in the area. The problem was no one told Jamie. Well, here, here's the thing. He's not wrong. Uh, 2000, he probably did discover it in 2008. Because the problem with that moon rock is it was never into an inventory control system. And maybe there was somebody that discovered it in 1995. But you discover it, there it is, and then you forget about it. Jamie didn't realize they had it until 2008. And it wasn't until 2009 when Boy and Rock were reunited. The National Museum of Natural Sciences, now known as the Canadian Museum of Nature, wasn't able to put the moon rock back on display, so it went to the Canada Science and Technology Museum in Ottawa on loan. There, Jamie was able to see it for the first time in over 30 years. Fittingly, it was the 40th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Canada's Goodwill Moon Rock is now with the Canadian Museum of Nature, where it periodically goes on display. The rock's journey had been a little murky. Jamie's wasn't. A love of astronomy turned into a love of astrophysics. He became Dr. Jamie Matthews, and then Professor Jamie Matthews, an astrophysicist at the University of British Columbia, where he measures the vibrations of stars too far away to be seen by a telescope on Earth. Not even a telescope in a cemetery. A stroke has resulted in some expressive aphasia, a little trouble finding words, but it hasn't slowed his work or his love for it. Bearing witness to the Apollo 17 mission, caring for a piece of lunar rock, set him on a path for life. Oh no, it was it was really good for me. So after this, uh, I did lots of lots of things after that with space and astronomy and so on. So no, this was a you know like come on, how many people have a, their own moon rock? <laughs> I mean, it's wonderful for me. Uh, and so that will always be one of the things that I'll like is the fact that I I actually had a real moon rock. And, and so, yeah, like I couldn't expect anything more than that, to be honest. There was a study released in late 2023. The Apollo 17 Lunar Lander Module, which was left behind on the moon, may be causing tiny moonquakes, small changes to the lunar surface, from the materials expanding and contracting with temperature changes. But Apollo 17 has been causing those tremors for a long time. The mission reverberated through dozens of teenagers who were invited to witness history in 1972 through people like Joseph Goodheintz, who want to protect the legacy of those missions, missions that were only possible because astronauts sacrificed themselves in our pursuit of lofty goals. And through Jamie Matthews, who for a brief time owned a tiny piece of it all and got a book about birds in return. And I still have it, of course. So no, now it's it really is nice for me. But at the time, it was like, birds? Nah. <laughs> okay, I have to feel like coming back that playing Marco Polo with Neil Armstrong is like maybe the biggest flex of all time. Oh, are you kidding me? He touched the moon and you got to touch him playing Marco Polo. I mean, not to be weird about it, but you're like, Neil, boom, got you. That's crazy. He touched the moon. And so if you touched him, it's like you've touched the moon. Yeah, it's like two degrees of Kevin Bacon, but the moon. <laughs> And in that story, he just casually mentions like, oh, yeah, I met Richard Nixon, but nah, didn't do anything for <laughs> nah. me. Just so good. <laughs> Love Jamie. I have to say, though, like, 
living in in LA and like pitching TV constantly, you're always like talking to network executives who are just like, we're looking for like the next procedural. We really want just like a crime procedural. Mm-hmm, and I'm mm-hmm. like, where is NASA Special Agents? Where's that show? I mean, that is like CBS written all over it. Oh, God. Right? CSI, NASA? Yeah. Are you kidding me? Now, did you guys have a very special character of this episode that was your favorite? Do you have one that just jumped out for you? Hmm. Jason? I was thinking about going with Neil Armstrong and his Mm -hmm. wife and kids splashing around the pool, which just Mm -hmm. was a a cool cameo. Um, But we just talked about Neil. I actually think the very special character in this episode is me, Dana Schwartz, (laughs) the volunteer at the Adler Planetarium, tangentially related to the story, just devoted to educating the next generation of space-loving kids. Actually, I have a different uh, character. Let me just read. Is it also me? (laughs) (laughs) How about the guy at the museum who, after fielding these calls for several years, just decides, like, I know how to put an end to this. I'll tell him it's stolen. (laughs) (laughs) What a great way to get get someone off your back. Yeah. That is 100% a great way to get someone off your back. In fact, I think I've done that. Like, oh, I don't know where it is. Your car was stolen, man. Stop calling me. Now, Dana, I got to say, uh, in all honesty, you were also my favorite special episode character. So I don't know Thank what you know, why much. Jason was thinking, but I went with you, too. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. I appreciate it. Top five. Top five. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Volunteers. We got to support the volunteers. Do it for love. <laughs> very Special Episodes is made by some very special people. This episode was written by Jake Rawson. Our producer, editor, and sound designer is Josh Fisher. Additional editing by John Washington. Mixing and mastering by Bahid Frazier. Very Special Episodes is hosted by Dana Schwartz, Zaren Burnett, and me, Jason English. Original music by Elise McCoy. Our story editor is Marissa Brown. Research and fact-checking by Marissa Brown, Austin Thompson, and Jake Rawson. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Our executive producer is me, Jason English. We'll see you back here next week after our first very special field trip. Very Special Episodes is a production of iHeart Podcasts. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.